Hello everyone, and welcome to Lockdown Law. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Don't forget to check me out on Instagram. My username is Law Lockdown. Check out my website, www.lockdownlaws.com. And finally, if you have the time, please give me a rating on Apple Podcast. Either way, thank you for listening, and I appreciate your support. My guest today is Stephanie Goldstein. Stephanie is a superstar real estate attorney in Los Angeles. She also interned for the Attorney General for the state of California. And Stephanie, you also have a degree in psychology, is that right? Yeah, um, can come in handy when clients want to use me as a psychologist instead of a lawyer, but uh, picked that up at University of Southern California as my undergraduate degree. Very nice. So have you been counseling your friends and family during the lockdown? (laughs) That's a good question. Um, You know, I, I think I feel like, and I'm sure you, maybe you'll agree with me, but being a lawyer sometimes is a combination of uh, doing the legal work and also counseling clients on their personal issues that are related to the problem. So in a way, I guess I have been kind of counseling them during COVID. Yeah, definitely. There's a reason why they call us counselors, right? Right. Yeah. A lot of it is just... Uh, dealing with people's emotions and, um, you know, I often forget that this is the first time people go through the system. And so, um, you got to remember every day to, uh, be patient, right? Definitely. Um, do you have any practical advice for people during the, the lockdown as a, if you put on your psychologist hat on how to stay sane? Um, yeah, I think one thing I try to do is if you're working from home, like most of us, is to kind of, if you can, separate your office space from, you know, where you can relax to kind of be able to shut that away when you're offline. That's something that I've tried to do. I put my office somewhere else so that I can kind of close the door and not see my computer and all my work in front of me all the time. Uh, for us lawyers, it's hard, though, since uh, now that we have email, everybody expects an answer right away, even if it's the weekend. So that's kind of something I've been trying to do. Uh, another thing is just staying in touch with friends and checking in on people and asking them how they're doing. Um, and I think many people have probably picked up some hobbies during quarantine. I certainly have. Uh, I do like to bake and cook, but I've picked up sourdough bread baking. So nice. a little hobby that I've been doing during quarantine. Very uh, that's cool. That's been good for me. Well, that's good. That's good advice to separate your spaces and give you a little bit more peace of mind, right? Definitely. Okay. So you are a real estate attorney, and so you're uh, well-versed in property law. Um, I want to talk to you about three major concepts in property law today. Uh, The first is adverse possession. The second would be eminent domain. And the third would be easements. So let's start with adverse possession. What is it? Okay. What is its purpose? And how do I steal property from my neighbor? 
<laughs> That's a great question. And I think a lot of people think of adverse possession as uh, stealing property from your neighbor, uh, but it's it's not quite like that. Um, you know, it's funny, actually, in law school, that actually, real property wasn't actually my best subject. And I never thought I would actually really have to deal with adverse possession in real life. But it's an issue that we litigate kind of commonly. So that was surprising to me coming out of law school. But the concept of adverse possession, uh, the underlying philosophy of it is that, you know, the law and generally speaking tends to favor land use over disuse. And therefore, this theory of acquiring land is to make sure that property owners kind of keep track of their land and take care of it. And if you fail to do so, then the p person who has been taking care of it can have an opportunity to acquire ownership over it. And it's uh, in, in order to adversely possess property, there's certain elements that you have to meet. And after a prescribed period of time, by operation of law, you've kind of become the quote-unquote owner of the property. But you still usually need to file a lawsuit in order to clear up title to make it a marketable property. Ah, interesting. So the theory behind it is um, we want to encourage people to use their land, to develop their land, and it's basically to protect squatters' rights. Is that accurate? Yeah, in, in a way. I, I'm, I don't know if I would say to protect squatters in particular, but just protecting and 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 giving an opportunity to reinforce the fact that you should be taking care of your land and monitoring it and if somebody else is doing it they should and they've done it for a certain period of time then they should have a right to kind of acquire that right from the person not taking care of the land yeah so if you come across a parcel of land and you put a fence on it and you put some crops on it um, maybe build a little house, and you do that for a certain amount of time, then the law kind of uh, rewards your your behavior. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, in a way, I think that uh, that's like a good way to say it in a common manner. Uh, ironically, the, the law actually says it's not meant to be a reward or a punishment. It's just meant to kind of keep everybody on their toes in a way. Interesting. And so um, there's a certain amount of time you have to develop the land. Is that accurate? Yes. And that can vary. I think, you know, every state is different. Um, it's like anywhere from three years to 40 years or something like that. Um, but you have to uh, develop the land for a continuous amount of time in order to uh, take ownership of the land. That's correct. And so in California, the statutory period is five years. Um, I don't know what it is for other states, but that's what it is here. Got it. And so some of the other elements of ad adverse possession um, that I'm hoping you can help me out with um, is that it has to be open and notorious, and it also has to be hostile. Is that right? Yeah. So. The term hostile, it doesn't mean that you have to be aggressively taking it, um, you know, exercising your Second Amendment rights with a gun sitting out in front of the property. It 
it's actually a term of art and it just means that you're kind of claiming a right in the property and in a manner that is kind of disadvantageous to the true owner. So, for example, the the example you gave, imagine there's a parcel of land and that land is owned by somebody else. You going in to kind of take control over it is quote unquote hostile to the rights of the true owner because you're kind of asserting your your use and right to possession over the property. Yeah, and that makes sense because if you're using it with the owner's uh, permission, then that's not really true adverse possession, right? That's right. And actually, so that's another good way to explain the hostility element is that you're doing it without the permission of the owner. And in fact, if you have permission from the owner, that would defeat a claim for adverse possession. And so... How do you reconcile like the trespassing element? I mean, technically you're you are trespassing in a way, right? Yeah, so uh you you basically are trespassing, but if you trespass for 5 years and there's a there's a big requirement besides the use and this is usually the most um this is a difficult element to meet if you're trying to acquire a portion of somebody's property because in order to satisfy the requirements of adverse possession, in addition to the elements that you've already stated, uh, has to be under a claim of right or color of title. And the possessor has to pay all of the taxes that have been levied and assessed assessed upon the property timely during the five-year period. And so, you know, earlier when you were asking, how do you steal property from your neighbor? And we can talk more about this when we get to the easement section. Even if you say enclose a portion of your neighbor's land with a fence, you're never really going to be able to adversely possess it unless that specific area has been separately taxed and assessed and you've been paying the taxes on it. Oh, that's very interesting. Okay. Um, So that brings us to the other element, which is open and notorious. So by paying the taxes, um, you, you're putting them on notice in a way, right? I mean, part of the, the theory behind the open and notorious element is that the, you're not doing it secretly, right? The owner has should have or does have some sort of knowledge of you trespassing on their land. Yes. So um, the tax payment of taxes, that doesn't actually relate to the open and notoriousness of the use. I think that I would categorize the taxes as a kind of a separate requirement of adverse possession. The openness and a notorious the open and notorious use, that the purpose of that is you're correct, is to make sure that your use is not secret. And the owner doesn't need to have actual notice that you've been possessing the property. It just it just needs to be your use needs to be so open and and notorious that a, if somebody did come check in on the property they would be able to see your use and so the type of notice you're kind of giving is constructive notice through your the nature of how you're using the property and that's how that requirement is satisfied interesting and um I think they call it tacking, but what that basically means is it's a continuous use. So you couldn't like occupy the property for two years 
take a one-year break, and then do the other three years to satisfy the five-year requirement in California, correct? That's an interesting question. Um, so you're kind of talking about the, it's kind of two different concepts, actually, tacking and the continuous, continuous and uninterrupted use. So to satisfy the continuous and uninterrupted use, it doesn't mean that you need to be at the property every day for a period of five years. It's a question of fact that is determined on a case-by-case basis. And all it requires is that the use that you're making is kind of regularly being used. Um, and in your fact pattern that you've given, I guess there would be a question as to whether a gap of one year would be considered continuous and uninterrupted. Um, it would just depend on how you're using the property. It probably would be enough to interrupt it because a year is kind of a long time, but it's really on a case-by-case basis. Uh, tacking is actually the concept that somebody before you can use a property for two years um, and the next person could theoretically tack on the time that they have been using the two years to the one from before. So it gives you the ability to kind of somebody else can be doing it and then you get to tack on. And that's kind of, um, I see it less often adverse possession and more often in the easement context for a prescriptive easement, which is kind of like the cousin of adverse possession, but for easements. Yeah. And so um, when you, when you say you have to basically live on the land, you can't just like use the land for hunting or things like that. You actually have to occupy the land on a permanent basis, correct? I don't really think that's, um, I don't think you have to actually have to occupy the land. It's not a matter of living on it. It's just a matter of use. So for example, uh, earlier you were kind of giving an example of a parcel with crops on it. So let's say you farm the land for five years and you pay taxes, but you don't live there. That is theoretically a way that you could acquire rights over the land. It also could be hunting. Um, you know, let's say that you want to acquire the land and and gain ownership over it by, you know, regularly hunting on the land and paying the taxes together. And that could be a way of establishing adverse possession. Fencing it in and maintaining it, that could be a way to adversely possess property. I think the most common um, situation, though, is if somebody kind of lives on it and We've had cases that are like that where somebody finds like an abandoned home. They see that people haven't been paying taxes on it. Um, we have a client that like just moves into the property, fixes it up, pays all the back taxes, pays all the back taxes, and then for five years from that date continues living there and pays the taxes. And that's kind of probably what people mostly think of squatting and adversely possessing land in that manner. Interesting. Thanks for clearing that up for me. Um, another thing I'm still not 100% clear on is the hostile requirement. Um, if you mistakenly believe the property is yours, but it's really not yours, and you do all these developments, would you still have a claim for adverse possession? The answer is it depends. Okay. And so that actually is uh, less about the hostility element 
because I think the hostility element, the better way to understand that is that it's without permission of the owner. The other element that's required is it has to be under a claim of right or color of title. So I'll address the first one, which is under a claim of right, and that's kind of addressing the situation that you're asking, which is, what if you mistakenly believe it's your land? Um, Even if you mistakenly believe it's your land, you can still adversely possess property as long as you are trying to claim it as your own. If you mistakenly believe it's your land, but you never had the intention of claiming it as your own, then that's not sufficient. So I think the example is, is let's say you're, you've, uh, you thought this parcel, you're the owner, right? You go in, you set up, you've been using it, and you believe it's yours. But in the back of your mind, you've always thought, well, if it's not actually mine, I'm not actually claiming it. In that situation, that's not sufficient to satisfy that requirement. But if you go in under the concept of, if you go in mistakenly and you, but in the back of your mind, you're kind of claiming ownership of it, whether or not you actually own it, then that is enough to satisfy that requirement. Got it. And so this is still being used today, this concept, adverse possession, huh? Yes, absolutely. Um, We've got, I think we have maybe around, at least three, maybe three case, ongoing cases uh, that are adverse possession right now that we're litigating in court, often against, uh, we, a lot of times nobody actually appears in the lawsuit and we're kind of litigating it against ourselves or with the judge, but it actually is happening. And one other interesting context that adverse possession actually occurs is in a co-tenancy situation where one, where like two owners of the property there's two owners of the property, and one owner can actually adversely possess the other owner's property in certain situations. Oh, yeah. So we've also done a case like that, and we were able to successfully uh, acquire for our client the other owner's interest in the property. All right. Let's talk about eminent domain, and I'll read some of the text from the Fifth Amendment. It's the last sentence i think it says nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation so what is the purpose of this stephanie what is the purpose of this clause in the fifth amendment so i think the fifth amendment is uh the public policy behind it is the the government should not be able to take your land without compensating you And so in order to protect people's property rights, if the government decides that they need your land for uh, one reason or another, uh, for example, a road, a freeway, um, for public utilities, or, you know, they need to expand part of their own property, it's not fair to the property owner to have to give that land up without being compensated in return. That makes sense. Um... Have you ever seen the Disney movie Up? I have. Okay. I always think about the old man in that movie. It just That movie will make a grown man cry. It's a great movie. But, <laughs> <laughs> but so for those of you who haven't seen that movie, um, it's about this old man, and he's lived in this house with his wife his whole life, and she passes away. And I don't know if it's the government or some, like, 
big corporation, but they basically buy up all the houses around him and they're trying to buy him out. And he just, you know, the house has sentimental value to him. And so he doesn't want to give it up. And long story short, he, he ends up having to give it up and he puts some balloons on his house and flies away. Um, but I always think of that scenario, you know, the thing that bothers me a little bit about the, the Fifth Amendment is, you know, people who don't want the money and, you know, are like attached to property. It, there's really no uh, catch all for them, right? Uh, not not really. I mean, there are some limitations on what can be kind of condemned or that a government can acquire. It can't just be for any reason whatsoever, but it, it, it's a pretty broad right that the government has to take your land. And there are protections in place to make sure that people are adequately compensated. There's kind of an appraisal process. They try to encourage uh, informal resolution before actually litigating the matter. And, you know, a lot of times there's there's two aspects to the eminent domain litigation. Either first part is, can they actually take the land? And the second part is, if they can, what is the just compensation that the private property owner is entitled to? Yeah, it is broadly interpreted in, in favor of the government taking land, right? I mean, that term public use is um, liberally construed. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think so. And uh, it's also hard because I, you know, the government has a unlimited resources to litigate the taking of the land, whereas a property owner um, does not. And so, just the sheer difference in resources, I think, can make it difficult for a private property owner to defend against the government trying to take their land. But there are some protections in place on on what you know how much money they get and whether the use can be taken. Yeah, that's a good practical point. Government has more resources than most people. <laughs> yes, a lot more. <laughs> um, right. And so the the taking of land that that actually has been construed. Um, liberally in favor of people. Um, I think I remember reading a case involving some houses in Lake Tahoe where there could be a regulatory taking. Can you explain that? Yeah, so regulatory taking, it, they the government is not physically taking your land away, but they may be imposing certain restrictions that kind of amount to a taking. If you think about property, it's described as a bundle of rights, is what I remember from law school. Um, and also, you know, cases also describe that the property in that way, because with property, you own it, you have a right to use it, um, you can lease it out to people. There's a lot of different rights associated with the property, and uh, taking cannot cannot is not just restricted to physically cutting off a piece of your land or like taking the house. It also relates to the rights that you have in the property. And so in certain situations the government imposes regulations that makes it, you know, it significantly reduces the value of property and ability to ability to use it. Uh, that's kind of what they call a regulatory taking. Yeah. And it makes sense because you're basically depriving somebody of all, almost all use of their property in those situations. Correct correct okay 
And the just compensation element, uh, are we talking just like fair market value? It's, uh, yes, it's, it's basically fair market value. But there's a, they have a very specific definition of fair market value. And, and, the, and they use it, a, you know, there's appraisers that are being used. Um, and you do have an ability to hire your own appraiser and all of that. But, um, yeah, it's basically fair market value. And interestingly, there's fair market value to the common person is uh, different than what an appraiser uh, thinks fair market value is because there are nuances in the definition that appraisers will use for fair market value. Yeah. So I've tried to uh, understand the Fifth Amendment and give deference to the framers. And uh, the way I see it, I guess it's part of the social compact. You know, at the end of the day, we need to give the government some flexibility to protect us and develop land, you know, and along the way, if they if they do that, they have to compensate um, the people justly. And I think the the most pure scenario is like, you know, the government having to uh, build a harbor somewhere or a military base or uh I think you, you had a good example of uh, highways and stuff like that. So I'm trying to uh, give them a, the benefit of the doubt. And is that a logical conclusion? I think so. I mean, it, it's, <laughs> that's why there's kind of a balancing process, I think. And the, the nature of how public use is defined, it does, it, you know, it's very broad, but it's meant to impact the whole community. So imagine, you know, we really need this new highway corridor in California, especially with all the traffic that we have here. And one person, maybe that old man um, in the little house who gets taken away by the balloons, he's not willing to sell and everybody is negatively affected because they're, you know, the government's not able to build a highway to benefit everybody or the high rail system between here and Nevada so that we can all go travel quickly to go gamble. Um, oh, I like that. That's kind of uh, that's kind of where this eminent domain comes in because otherwise, like you know, one holdout will can frustrate the entire process for public benefit, and it's meant to weigh the two things. And there, you know, you do have to do it through a court proceeding if if you dispute the right to take. And you also have an opportunity to challenge any valuation, you know, by hiring your own appraiser. And unlike regular lawsuits, there are kind of fee and cost shifting burdens, at least in California, um, that don't really exist in regular litigation. And so it, it tr the purpose of that is to try to incentivize the government to not lowball the private owner too much. Um, so there are some protections in place, but it obviously every real property is unique. And that's a really important underpinning of real estate practice. And it's obviously hard for a private individual to imagine that a freeway is worth more than their private interest in the property. But sometimes for the greater good, I guess, that's why eminent domain exists. And I haven't been following this, but does this still exist? I mean, is the government still doing this? And if they are, is it usually in small, small numbers? So I don't follow it too closely, but I have recently I had a case where a client owned some land and a public utility company, which is sort of a quasi-governmental entity, 
they wanted to put power lines and put a power pole over a portion of my client's land. And basically, we were able to resolve it before it got to the litigation stage. But that's I've seen that happen a lot more like taking for utility purposes or just like a small piece to add to a highway or something like that. So yeah, it, it does still happen and it still, it still occurs. One thing that fascinated me in doing the research is um, I think there's only been one example of this, but the government can also do this with patents and um, they did it during the anthrax scare um, against Bayer. I, I mean, they basically took over their patent for, I don't know if it was a vaccine or a, or a medication or something. Um, so I thought that was fascinating. That is really interesting. Um, thinking about right now during COVID, you know, a few pharmaceutical companies have developed vaccines. And I wonder if uh, at any point the government would ever think of taking the yeah. patent for the vaccine. And uh, interesting. Taking it for themselves. Yeah, they even manipulated the price. I, I think, Bayer wanted five dollars a dose um, back during the anthrax scare, and the government negotiated down to like ten cents. <laughs> so it wasn't like a complete <laughs> taking, but um, it's pretty close. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Can you explain easements to me? Yes. Uh, so easements is actually also another, it's a really big part of at least our practice. Um, we deal with a lot of easement rights and easement disputes, usually arising within the context of uh, boundary disputes between neighbors. But an easement is a is an interest in a land of another that gives the owner of the easement the right to use the land of the other person or to prevent the other property owner from using that land. Okay. And there's, um, yeah. And there's public easements versus private easements. Is that right? Yes, there are. And what's the difference between the two? So a private easement is a easement that is for the benefit of a private property owner. And so it's directly related to and connected to uh, private property owner ownership rights. Uh, the, a public easement is an easement for the benefit of the public. So kind of going back to like public utilities, those are kind of public easements. So if you imagine you have a home, you live in a house somewhere, and you've got power lines above your property, there's likely a public utility easement that allows a public utility company to maintain the power lines over your house. And so that easement is a public easement because it's for the benefit of the public. It's meant to benefit not just one person. It's meant to benefit the public as a whole. Versus let's say you and your neighbor have a shared driveway and there is a, you know, you, you guys you have an easement over your neighbor's property to drive over your neighbor's property. That's a private easement. Got it. Yeah. One thing that has surprised me over the years is how poorly land is drawn up. Um, I own some property in uh, the Sierra Nevada mountains and it used to be gold country and it's just, it's a mess. And so I think the purpose behind easements is, 
or access, right? Make sure that you um, have the critical access routes you need to your land. That is definitely a big part of easements. You can kind of have an easement for anything. Um, and there's different kinds of easements and there's different ways that easements can be created, but traditionally access is a a big, big category and reason why easements are created. And if you block somebody's easements, um, what type of repercussions would you face? So, uh, let's see. If you're talking about an access easement, if you block somebody from, so let me back up a little bit. So there's there's all kinds of easements and they're created in different manners. So I'm going to talk specifically right now about an express easement, which is an easement that has been kind of expressly agreed upon between parties. It's usually written and it's usually recorded against the property. So in those situations, the express easement defines a scope of use. And if somebody interferes with that easement and prevents you from exercising your rights under the permitted scope of use, the owner of the easement, in in other words, a person that's, that is gaining the benefits from the easement, they can file a court action to get a preliminary injunction to prevent you from blocking them. Um, but kind of going back to the adverse possession concept, and or the cousin of that is the prescriptive easement. And so if you block it for five years, you can actually terminate the easement. Interesting. So there's a... It's like first, you get so far, and you can be, get in trouble for it. But if you go far enough, then you actually get to terminate the easement, and it becomes, you know, yours to control. Yeah, you're playing with fire, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, if you own property and uh, you pass away without a will or a trust, what happens to that property? So it depends. Uh, lawyer's favorite answer. Uh, if the property is, if you have heirs or there's people that may be entitled to your property, there's several things that that person can do. One, they can open probate and the rights to the land are litigated through probate and title is passed via court order that you record against that property. Another way to deal with land is if it's below a certain value, and I don't remember what that is, you can file kind of a expedited application with the court to have title passed to the heir that is supposed to take title to the property. Um, there also are other situations where, for example, if you own a property with somebody as a joint tenant, or if you're husband and wife and you own it as community property with a right of survivorship in California, when one person passes, the rights of the land automatically, um, by operation of law, passes to the other joint tenant. And so to perfect that, there's an affidavit that you record and that will perfect your title as the 100% or you know whoever is left, they become the owners of the land and they acquire the interests of the person that's passed away. So those are kind of three mechanisms that uh, on how to deal with property if somebody dies without a will. And then obviously if it's a trust, which I don't think, I'm not sure if you mentioned that, but in a trust, um, the trustee is the one who kind of handles 
things after somebody passes, and they can have the authority to transfer the property without having to deal with probate. Yeah, and probate can be a nightmare. It could take a long time, and it could be expensive. So it's always better to have a will or a trust, right? Yeah, and uh, it's probably best to really have a trust to avoid probate altogether, because even if there is a will, a will still needs to be probated. So dying with a will and without a will, it's kind of the same process. You have to you know, open up probate and the court has to adjudicate who is the correct owner of the property rights, uh, personal and real property. The best way to avoid probate is to usually have a trust or um, to hold title in a manner that doesn't require any further action, which is, you know, a joint tenancy or right or survivorship type situation. Okay, last question. What is your favorite and least favorite part of being a real estate attorney? <laughs> um, let's see. So I'll start with my favorite part. And uh, I think real estate law is actually really interesting. It tends to be a little esoteric and complicated, but I really enjoy that. And because each real property is unique, there are some overlaps from case to case, but it keeps it interesting. And so I, I really enjoy that aspect of it. And it's it's kind of like a tangible um, thing you're litigating about real property. It's actually there and there's rights to affect it. So it, I, I enjoy all those things about it. Um, my least favorite thing about real estate it, law is... I don't know if it's particular to my practice, but when you're when you have neighbors or you know individuals or not big corporations like litigating against each other, it can get very very contentious, and so sometimes it's kind of hard to just deal with all those different personalities. Because if you imagine an average person isn't really trying to sue their neighbor, and so by the time it gets to that point. Um, it's very personal and contentious. And so that can be very stressful for everybody involved and the emotions get really high and it can cause uh, clients and the other side to make decisions that are not based in logic and based in emotion. But that might not be unique to just the real estate practice. That just might be uh, kind of something common to all litigation. I think so. It's a good point. Um, one of my favorite things about the mask is uh, I practice law in a small town, and whenever I go to the grocery store, I, like 99.9% .9 of the time, run into a client. So the nice thing about the mask is I'm like a little incognito, and maybe I can get in and out quicker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, you know, LA is a big place, but and so we, you know, our office is out in Century City, and so less likely for me to run into clients, but. I hear you. Um, it's uh, it's really interesting, and the real estate because it's such a people fight hard for their property. They earn their property rights. They've spent a lot of money investing in it. It it really makes people um, yeah, that's a good stand point. their ground. It's almost and, like your you know, whole life. I, I mean, yeah, some, yeah, your whole life's work. It's, you know, it's your it's your home. It's your life savings, and it can really lead to. Um, some interesting fact patterns and situations, you know, even forcing or causing relatives, mothers and daughters, fathers and daughters, 
a lot of f- former boyfriend girlfriend suing each other, mm. which keeps it interesting, but oh, yeah. also sometimes can be quite stressful. But I, I, I actually still, even if that's my least favorite part of real estate litigation, I, I still, uh, I enjoy it all because it's all keeps it interesting, and I'm always learning. So I like that. Well, you got to love the law, and it sounds like you do. And that's my biggest advice to people who um, are thinking about going to law school. So you got to really get into it because um, it's gonna consume your whole life, basically. <laughs> and it is stressful. And uh, but if you enjoy the intellectual challenges of it and and also the social interaction you know pre-covid you know i loved going to court and you develop friendships even with um opposing counsel so um that's definitely one of the cool things about being a lawyer is you interact with a lot of people absolutely yeah i uh you know now we just do the court online the la court connect in la or not the same right (laughs) it's not the same um, but it's kind of nice to not have to deal with certain opposing counsel. So <laughs> uh, there's always a silver lining. <laughs> That's true. Um, Stephanie, I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you for coming onto my podcast and uh, for your time and expertise. And um, I wish you and your family happy holidays. Thank you, Ian. Uh, thank you for inviting me. It was great chatting with you and nice meeting you. The information provided in this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available on this podcast are for general informational purposes only. Information in this podcast may not constitute the most up-to-date legal or other information. Listeners of this podcast should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No reader or listener to this podcast should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information on this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information contained herein and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Use of and access to this podcast or any of the resources contained within the podcast do not create an attorney-client relationship. The views expressed at or through this podcast are those of the individual author writing in their individual capacities only, not those of their respective employers. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast are hereby expressly disclaimed. The content on this posting is provided as is. No representations are made that the content is error free.